we know that addictions can develop more easily if children are young and that screen habits tend to be established early. They're embedded and they can last a lifetime. So we know that when children have higher screen time when they're very young and you check them out decades later, they're likely to have very screen, high screen time then. So if you want to establish healthy media habits, it's best to um, you know, keep uh, recreational screen media to a modest amount when they're young. Welcome to another HG podcast. I'm Joe Baker and I'm part of the HG team. And today I'm going to be talking to Dr. Eric Sigmund about some of the impacts of screen time on children's physical and mental health. Dr. Sigmund is a fellow of both the Royal Society of Biology and the Royal Society of Medicine, as well as an associate fellow of the British Psychology Society and a chartered scientist. His first degree is in psychology, which he followed with the master's in the neurophysical basis of behaviour before doing a PhD in the field of the role of attention in autonomic nervous system self-regulation. Today, Eric delivers PSHE talks to children, parents and staff at schools, as well as lectures to medical schools, NHS doctors and delivering at conferences. He's a member of the all-party parliamentary group on a fit and healthy childhood and publishes peer-review medical papers on health and development subjects. To date, Eric has authored five books on PSHE-related topics, including Getting Physical, which won the Times Educational Supplements Information Book Award. He's also on the editorial advisory board for our Human Givens Journal. It's so good to have you here with us today, Eric. So thank you so much for joining us. Sure. Um, I've followed your work, as you know, from your days on Going Live and Live and Kicking in the 90s and the great work that was, was done there to really raise awareness around mental health. Um, and encouraging children really to to talk about it and and to reach out. And of course, our paths converged about 12 years or so ago through our mutual connection and HG therapist, the late and much missed Johnny Leach. Yeah. So there's there's more awareness and and research now around digital wellbeing than when you first started talking about it. And I know when I first read your book, it was quite an an eye-opener really. And there has been some developments that, uh, you know, on, on what you'd already highlighted on the physical and social and emotional impacts on ever increasing screen time in our children. Yes. Interestingly, I didn't have much of an interest in the issue of screen time. I do a lot of traveling and I like to go to very, very foreign countries, everything from North Korea to West Papua to Bolivia to Bhutan, the last country in the world to receive television. And I started to notice enormous differences between cultures which had screens and those that didn't, particularly in their children. And I was specifically interested in Bhutan to watch what happens. And I was there when screen arrive for the first time and they go from nothing unlike our culture where we went from black and white to big color to they went from nothing to uh, flat screen television and it made me suddenly realize actually um, spending time especially as a child looking at entertainment media may have some influence on the way that child um, turns out both physically and mentally the other thing that struck me was that everybody's concerned and think about it nowadays everybody's up in arms about children's mental health as a result of lockdown mental health is now the zeitgeist nobody bothered to think okay children's mental health is affected by X, Y, and Z, but nobody bothered to think, what is the main waking activity of children? What is the thing that they do almost as much as sleep every day? It's looking at entertainment, or I call it discretionary screen time. And in more recent times, people have started to think, actually, maybe what they're looking at or just the amount of time they're spending may have an influence, not just on their physical health, but on their mental health. And that increasingly drew me into the subject matter, which is ultimately why you and I are speaking today. Mm. And I guess, you know, that that if we think about the barriers to why people can suffer from mental ill health, one of the main ones that we talk about is the environment. And of course, that yes. then becomes an integral part of the environment, doesn't it? With this constant background of screen time. 
Yes, there's several ways. Uh, and again, one of the problems we have is that the um, the doubting Thomases say there's no evidence of causation. You cannot prove that screen time actually causes a mental health problem. Well, you don't need to, because what happens is, as you and I know, when it comes to pediatric health, is to always err on the side of caution. It's called the precautionary principle, whereby if there are enough studies which find correlations or there are mixed results, the safest course of action is to recommend moderation while research continues. And we are talking about two, I suppose, black arts. Psychotherapy and psychiatry, as much as they want to be a science in the way that orthopedic medicine is, are not. They can never be because we're talking about abstract concepts, mental health, which differ between generations. Just think about it. Homosexuality was only removed from the World Health Organization's list of uh, mental health problems in the early 1990s. And between different cultures, there are different definitions of what a mental illness is. So mental health is not a, a finite hard science in the way we'd like it to be. And of course, screen time, or I call it discretionary screen time. I'm not talking about, you know, reading the Old Testament or Shakespeare on an iPad or a Kindle, nor am I talking about using screens for education. We're talking about the major use of screens, which is recreational screen time. Again, it's a rather vague, abstract concept. And for that reason, again, it's hard to look at these two rather vague things and make causation claims about them. Nevertheless, the links are pretty good. And for that reason, we do need to consider several things. First of all, how much time are children spending and what may be displaced in terms of their developmental experiences? What are they not receiving as a result of that? Uh, The second thing is, what are they looking at on the screen? Are the messages they're receiving or just the pictures, for example, in females, very slender images day in and day out. Are those things having an effect on their mental health? And then other simple things like, are they actually up late at night? Is the blue light from the screens delaying their sleep time? And there's a strong um, link between a lack of sleep and the development of mental health problems. And those are just three roads into mental health problems from discretionary screen time. And I guess you know, I was going to say, you know, is it more the content that's the problem or actually the tech itself? But of course, none of that is really measurable, is it? And both of them are problematic. And we know that the engagement in the screens, as much as the blue light, the psychological engagement in screen time, whether it's fast edited images or whether it's social media that encourages you to keep scrolling, that psychological engagement with the screen also has an impact on delaying sleep and also on sleep architecture as well. Absolutely, because the kinds of things on screen are generally not dull, which is why young people want to look at screens before bedtime. There's an ever-changing array of novelty available. Things are unpredictable, and it's very engaging. And that's not conducive to winding down and going to sleep, unlike a book where you are controlling the flow of information, and ultimately there's a slow process of interpreting words, symbols, sentences, metaphor, and irony. It's not that. It's not the case with either social media or videos before bedtime. So that is uh, an important issue. And there are some other things which I haven't even gotten into, the issues of addictions, which are now formally considered to exist. For example, gaming disorder is now an official disease, disease number 6C51 with the World Health Organization, because they have started to see what appear to be brain changes in areas which also change in heroin and cocaine addiction and so on. So there are some physiological issues here to consider which result in behavioral problems. So what what kind of behavioral problems might we see if somebody is become addicted to, to screens or to gaming? Very similar to what we see in other forms of either substance addictions or behavioral addictions. And uh, the issue of withdrawal, uh, what I hear typically from parents is that when they ask, and it's usually a son when it comes to gaming, they ask their son, it's dinner time, and could you please come down for dinner? And he doesn't come down. And usually it's the mother who says, dinner's on the table, and the son becomes hostile. There's this latent aggression, and they can see there's a hostility there. They don't want to stop. So that's one thing that I'm I'm hearing, and it is one of the sort of symptoms or signs. 
also, obviously, as with any kind of other addiction, a preoccupation with it, um, an investment in it to the extent that the child or the adult is losing out on other opportunities, interacting with other people, uh, spending an inordinate, inordinate amount of time, uh, late night use, and the things we see with other addictions appear to occur with things like gaming disorder. Yes. Mm-hmm. And so I guess, you know, all of this, you, and you mentioned adults as well, all of this is equally applicable to, to adults, these problematic behaviors that we that we see but how is this if we're looking at I'm, I'm just thinking about my own little boy now and I don't have it so much with my daughter so it's quite interesting that you say that but my own son is eight years old nearly and he doesn't have too much screen time because we're quite mindful around that in our house however if he has been left inadvertently whilst I've been working or perhaps you know he might be with granny or something and he's had a little bit more screen time than he would usually have there is a marked difference in his behavior after that screen time has come to an end and he yeah. You know, he he is not happy that he's been asked to turn the television off. And there is, yes, there is a distinct shift in behaviour and attitude following that. However, I think one of the really interesting things is can we, are we able to see differences in early use of of television? Is there there an age where it's, or screens rather, because you see people giving their children, you know, uh, know, handheld tech as well at quite an early age. Is there a an age limit where it starts to be less problematic, would you say? Well, we know that, uh, for example, what make it what will make it helpful is that the World Health Organization has issued screen time guidelines recently. Children under two, not recommended. The same with the U.S. Department of Health and Australia and New Zealand and some other countries, because we assume that screen technology can be educational. Well, we're imposing that interpretation because we're adults. Children's brains aren't ready to benefit from what we think is educational under the age of two. The other thing, um, and they then go on to say, by the way, between two and five, they say a maximum of an hour a day but, quote, less is better. And there are good reasons for that. One is that we know that addictions can develop more easily if children are young and that screen habits tend to be established early. They're embedded and they can last a lifetime. So we know that when children have higher screen time when they're very young and you check them out decades later, they're likely to have very screen high screen time then. So if you want to establish healthy media habits, it's best to um, you know keep uh, recreational screen media to a modest amount when they're young so that those habits, those habits will be established in a healthy way. The other series of concerns involve new links between early exposure to screen time and ADHD and now autism. Both of these things are controversial because the argument seems to go that, A, you're going to make parents feel guilty. Those parents who have children who are on the autistic spectrum will feel guilty and it's a blame and a shame culture or the same with ADHD. And besides that, it may be the other way around. The children on the, on the spectrum and children with ADHD may be drawn to more screen time. Both of those things can be true at the same time. And the thoughts on both of those things are that there may be genetic predispositions which enable some children to develop ADHD and in other cases, um, autism, and that they require an environmental trigger. And one of the many triggers may be excessive recreational screen time at key stages of neurological development. So that's yet one more reason that moderate screen time is considered important. And you mentioned earlier on when we were initially speaking that editing speed, that's also thought to be an important thing. Now, children and toddlers like a lot of variety and lots of fast changing zooms, pans and edits and sound effects just because they're drawn to it as they are to E numbers and sugar doesn't mean it's good for their neurological development when they're very young. And it may be that it in some way overstimulates their attentional system and corrupts it in some way, leading to attention problems uh, when they're older. And it doesn't happen necessarily at the time, which is another problem with people talking about screen time and mental health. Unlike other things which may cause damage now, physical exposures, excessive screen time or certain types of screen exposure may take a number of years to result in a problem. And for that reason, it's been ignored. So those are some of the reasons that early exposure is something we need to simply get a handle on. 
Mm. And and so I guess if you do have a child with a diagnosis of either ADHD or autism, it's really useful to be aware that that can actually become problematic for them, and just to be aware that they may need to moderate screen yes. time, you know, a little bit more. Especially um, children on the autistic spectrum, it's well known. And I lecture. I'm going to be doing this tomorrow, by the way. I'm lecturing to boys. Some of them are have got ADHD. Others are on the spectrum. And I also lecture at certain colleges and it, not just it's not the case that I just see it myself, but I'm hearing from parents and lecturers and it's in the journals as well. Children on the autistic spectrum love more screen time than children who are not on the spectrum. And it's thought that they can also become more addicted to it um, because of their predispositions. Now, just because they happen to love it more doesn't mean it's a good time to give a good idea to give them more. And we do have to keep a handle. And it's very difficult for parents to do so. ADHD, it may be the case also that they tend to like a lot of screen time and we need to keep a handle on that because it may exacerbate some of their symptoms. Mm. You did mention before that, actually, that, you know, excessive screen time can lead to some ADHD-like symptoms in people. Is this something that you think may be leading to, you know, an an increase in diagnosis of of ADHD? And again, I know this is a very controversial area for a lot of people, but it's something that I've seen in the work that I do with young young people as a real increase in that diagnosis. There is. Now, those who like a lot of screen time and feel that we shouldn't be recommending limits will say that it's just that we're better at diagnosing ADHD. But there are other studies which are looking at children and they screen them, teenagers, by the way, long after their young children who do not have any ADHD symptoms. They monitor them. This is around the age of 15. And they find that within a year or so, those that were spending more time on recreational screen time were more likely to start showing symptoms of ADHD. So there are good reasons to think that there may be some causation in some children who have a genetic predisposition, that it could be the environmental trigger for some. And personally, and this is my own personal take on it, uh, I think that some of these cases are the result of this environmental exposure in children who had a genetic predisposition. I think that we have a new generation or a couple of generations who've had very intensive exposure from a very young age to very exciting media. And that in a small proportion of those children, um, it may have triggered ADHD. And that's my own interpretation of the, the studies that I'm seeing. Mm. And why would that be? Is it because we talked about the the fast editing and the colors and the noise? And obviously this is firing off the orientation response in the brain. Yes. Um, And and so therefore the, the brain is going to be then seeking further orientation. And please correct me if I'm wrong here, Eric, with any of my, you know, layman science, but so the brain is, is then unable to maintain focus on any one thing for too long because it's searching for the next orientation? It would seem to be the case that it somehow corrupts the attentional system. It provides too much reward at a very uh, crucial stage of development, and thereby ordinary life seems dull. I liken it to the idea of if you, for example, gave your eight-year-old son for a year e-numbers in all of his foods and flavor enhancers Mm -hmm. to make them more colorful, and I'm sure you're a wonderful cook, Joanna, but um, uh, but make your cooking even more wonderful. And then suddenly, as of January 1st, 2023, you withdrew all of the e-numbers and all of the flavor enhancers. Your son would find your cooking boring. And I think this is a good analogy to what's happened. It's almost, I suppose, electronic media is is sort of the flavor enhancer of the audiovisual world. And real life seems a little bit dull when you don't have all that variety, both visually and also, you know, acoustically. Mm. So I guess what you're talking about is that that hijack of that motivation reward circuit in in the brain, you know, the, and the the e numbers is the the MSG, the dopamine that's been sprinkled on, you know, and the the children are searching for more. Yeah, partly reward, but partly other things to do with attention and probably the neurochemistry that results from looking at, at novelty and so on. There's probably a, a number of different things going on, but it, I think it. A lot of it injury. hijacks and distorts uh, what should be a natural process. And we have to remember that children's brains don't finish developing, if you can put a number on it, until at least the age of 25. New evidence that it's sort of 30. So when we're talking about children who are particularly under two, but you know, uh, up to seven years old, those are highly malleable years when yeah. attention systems can be, can be corrupted. 
there are so many um, learning templates that are still to seek completion in the environment at that point. And, you know, it isn't until later on that they start closing off. So if we're then programming almost with uh, this external stimuli, it seems quite clear then that there's a potential for, for, you know, structural change. Yeah, they're overpaying those children with high sensation environments, which are not natural and don't prepare them for the real world, which doesn't have that kind of variety uh, and, in, and intensity. Now, those who are very pro screen for babies will say, well, you have to prepare babies and children for the digital world they're going to be growing up in. No, uh, actually, you don't, because most of their life is still going to be taking place in a non-virtual context. And they can certainly acquire any digital skills easily because they're young at any age. So the idea of, of there being a need to expose them to a lot of digital experience or they'll miss out in the technology revolution is utterly fatuous. It simply isn't true. And it serves the interests of those who either ideologically are wedded to a digital life or those who make a profit from it. But certainly those who are involved in uh, emphasizing the importance of child development, whose main focus is children, don't seem to feel that way. Mm, mm. And I remember reading somewhere that, you know, both Steve Jobs and Bill Gates chose not to give their children mobile phones until they were about 14. And I thought, you know, these are two people here who know an awful lot more about these things than I do. And, you know, they set to profit enormously from people having these, these items. So, and they've chosen not to give them to them. So I thought, well, I'll, I'll, I'll take a leaf out of their book. Um, and I chose to do that with, with my children. Um, there were friends who perhaps weren't so, so friends, uh, or, or weren't such good friends, um, who said, you know, you're really disadvantaging them by them not having a phone. You're limiting their social circles. They'll be ostracized for not having a mobile phone and not being on these social media sites. But actually what I found was that they, they weren't exposed to some of the, the more unpleasant sides of those until they were more mature and more able to, to take those on. It's not something I, I wasn't the most popular mum in the world from my daughter's point of view, but I'm still pleased that I did that because it wasn't until they were 14, 15 and they were better equipped than to deal with some of the more unpleasant things that can happen. And you're you're very much in keeping with some of the the tech people that I meet, both people who are you know the heads of huge gaming companies, all of whom who've done what you've done. And they've been very honest about it. They say that obviously we make a profit from gaming. But when people come to us to work for our companies to develop games and I ask them, what experience do you have? And they say to me, I've played a lot of computer gaming and I spent a lot of time on screens. The guy said to me, I don't hire them. What I want are people who've spent their childhoods and young years experiencing the real world and then bringing that to the creative world of gaming. Uh, So I'm hearing this from gaming companies themselves, but also I meet people and I'm not going to mention any names who are at the top of their pardon the pun, game. They are the heads of these huge gaming companies or um, uh, networks, um, even politicians. And they all say to me that they either send their children to low tech schools and the kids don't have televisions or screens in their bedrooms and so on, because they say we want our children to be creative. And the best way for them to be creative on screens when they're older is to experience real life when they're younger. So I think you're, you're right. Take your leave from people who make their profits from screens. And I gather I, I keep hearing reading this again and again that in Silicon Valley, the local Steiner Waldorf School, which is very low tech, uh, 70% of the kids there are the children of all the tech executives like Google and Facebook and so on. So they obviously know something that the rest of us don't. Absolutely. And, you know, we're lucky enough to have Steiner schools over here as well. So if you're interested, listeners, in, in researching the work that they do, you can uh, you can look up the Steiner school system. When I've been working with students in universities who are on gaming degrees, or even ones that are not on degrees, but are spending an, an awful lot of time on computer games. I do have the discussion with them around what, what interests them about gaming. And, you know, people often say, oh, you know, I'd really like to become a professional gamer. Um, and I ask them what, what they know about that job and about that role and, and what's involved in it. And very few of them are aware that actually it's quite, you know, quite a disciplined 
job role to, to have and that the companies require them to maintain a really healthy balanced diet and that they require them to take structured physical exercise and all of these things and also um, you know getting outside in nature and taking time outside and all of these are integral to that role because they have to perform like an athlete you know yeah. so they need to be looking after their physical and, and mental well-being as an athlete would. And that can often come as quite a surprise. And I found that that's been quite a useful analogy to use with people that you can do this, but you need to have a healthy balance. And if you're doing this in excess to the exclusion of being able to maintain that healthy lifestyle, then it's going to become really problematic. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, if uh, you're someone who's studying gaming at university um, and you're spending a certain amount of time on the screen to do that, is it really that different from somebody who's studying a different subject, but it happens to also involve a lot of screen time? Uh, so, A, it doesn't necessarily mean they're going to be having more screen time. And it may be that um, it just happens to be gaming, but it could be something else for that matter. And it's always a good idea to have a healthy lifestyle no matter what you're doing. So it's good to hear that because uh, I think, unfortunately, what we're not hearing about is that most of the people who then go ahead and buy and play the games don't lead those lifestyles. Well, we know that for a fact Absolutely. that people who spend a lot of time gaming tend not to do um, a lot of other things. And in the real commercial world, the actual recipients of a lot of games tend to spend a lot of time in their bedrooms gaming and, and not doing other things. And, and we know that, you know, both the, you know, television and engagement with any social media sites on online or, you know, video streaming sites can really put you into a trance. So you might think, oh, I'm just going to, I'll just hop on and I'll play for 20 minutes. And then three hours, four hours later, uh, you can still be still be on there. Well, there's good reason for that, because the gaming and social media companies in Silicon Valley are hiring teams of neuroscientists to alter the nature of the games, for example, the scoring systems, so that when you do score, you produce more dopamine. Mm -hmm. And uh, this alters the trajectory towards addictions and dependency. So there is a, a real fine science behind the gaming industry and also the social media industry who want to design methods of increasing dopamine and altering rewards so that people will need to spend more time on those screens, on those games, on that social media to feel the same buzz they did last month. So there was a, a really interesting documentary that many of our listeners may have seen called The Social Dilemma. And it really does explore a lot of the things that, that, that you've been talking about there. And it's quite interesting, the, the shift in engagement in life in a, with our, our young people. They're spending less time outside. So they're exposed to less, less daylight, less vitamin D, less able to reset their master clock, which we know is, is a, a vital mm. thing from, from getting outside into daylight. And so the combination of the, the stimuli in the brain of, of the screens and you know, whatever medium they're, they're using, plus that amount of time on screens, really meaning that that time they're on screens, they're not doing the other things that they would otherwise have, have been doing. And if you think about car journeys, you know, you used to go on car journeys and perhaps you talk and maybe you'd be looking at the environment around you now. Lots of children are there and they're kept quiet with, you know, handheld technology to make the time pass faster for them. But it's missing out on conversations as well. And that face-to-face -face exchange yeah. with other humans. You know, we know that children need to read facial expression and to build rapport. And I wonder whether we're losing some of that. I think we're definitely losing some of that. That um, was the verbal proficiency is the technical term. But ultimately, social skills are not a vague thing. Everybody feels they're valuable. But like a muscle, if you and I don't walk very much, our thigh muscles will be weaker. If we don't lift many things, like shopping, for example, our biceps will be weaker. People find it difficult to think of social skills and the brain areas that are linked to them as also being essentially like a muscle, a neurological area, which needs to be electrically and also in terms of blood, blood flow. They need to be stimulated early and often to avoid disappointment. And that requires looking at people's faces, interpreting the subtle micromuscular. For example, I can see I'm looking at you on the screen, 
right now, you have a look of inquisitiveness because of subtle muscular changes in your eyebrows and so on. It's important for children to pick those things up. And it takes years of understanding uh, the relationship between facial expressions, body posture, voice modulation, and emotions to be able to read people's emotions. And that's an important skill. And by looking at a lot of screen time, A, you're displacing it, but secondly, you may be replacing it with an artificial version of how people mm-hmm. behave. So, Absolutely. And that varies through by culture as well. Yes. So, you know, the, the, the interpretation of emotion and also of, of, you know, a facial expression is is different between cultures. So that's a really interesting point that if you're if you're in one particular culture and perhaps you're spending an awful lot of, of time watching television or playing games that were created from a different cultural perspective, there's a whole different dynamic going on there. I've even noticed it as an American over here. Um, I'm astounded by how the body language that I saw in the United States a number of years ago makes its way over here. And I'm wondering, why do people swagger in a, in a less British way? They walk in a more American way. They gesticulate. And it's because, obviously, American media um, owns a very high proportion of the media that young people see, whether it happens to be Netflix or a type of social media. Most of the stuff is owned by America. A lot of the content is America. And with that comes not just expressions like starting sentences with so or kind of like. There's also body language and other more subtle things uh, and facial facial changes in response to what people say, which are not part of they're not indigenous parts of this culture. So I've seen it personally. I'm not surprised that. Uh, this is going on. And you can decide whether this is a great thing uh, or whether it's not. I'll, I'll leave that value judgment to you. But it certainly does work. It does have an effect. But then, you know, the fact then there is that it programs learning. Yes. Whether we think that's good or bad, that's what's actually. Exactly. And and when people say, you know, you're dissing screen time, well, you and I are not dissing screen time. Um, You know, it's like almost any new development. If you have a car, if you use it constructively, it can help you do good things. But if you misuse the car or overuse, if you overuse the car, you and I will become unhealthy because we don't walk anywhere. If we drive too fast or while we're drunk, we will cause an accident. If we drive too much, we'll cause more air pollution. And so this is a new development. It's called screen technology. And we're still working our way through what's called a healthy balance. And yes, of course, you can learn things from it. On the other hand, um, you can learn good things or bad things or things which are a waste of time or things which are incompatible with your value system. Uh, So there are many fine increments of of, of learning, of course. Mm. So I guess really it's, it's how we engage with the screens and for what purpose. And I guess the, the problematic screen engagement is the, the, the one that creates drift, the one that does not have purpose to it. Yeah. 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 And I'm, I'm all for, for watching trashy television or trashy movies, much to my family's chagrin. You know, a bit of escapism using screen time is fine. But I think there are a couple of things which can clarify this whole issue of so-called screen time. One of them is the sheer amount of screen time, even if it happens to be educational David Attenborough documentaries, excessive amounts of time where you're not doing something else and you're sitting passively and you're absorbing someone else's ideas uh, and many other aspects of high screen time are generally not going to be good just because of the lack of activity and the lack of variety and the lack of contact with the real non-virtual world. So that's one argument for keeping screen time to a moderate level. And then when you get into things like the content, what people are looking at, and also, I mean, there's simple things like when you look at violent computer games as opposed to non-violent games, you see some um, you know, significant changes. For example, changes in cortisol, higher levels of the stress hormone cortisol, and particularly in boys, cardiovascular arousal, higher blood pressure, higher heart rate, and uh, higher thoughts uh, of aggression and things like that. Even changes in appetites. For example, with a violent game, you if you put a bowl of M&Ms near somebody, they're more likely to pig out on the M&Ms. So there are some qualitative differences which are linked to what you're watching. I could go on and on about that with things like appetite, but Screen time is is a vague concept which covers a, a variety of different things. But so we need to look at the time, the time of night, and what people are looking at. Not just the content, but also the activity. Is it a passive reception or is it an active involvement? Both of those things have pros and cons. 
Okay. Okay. And that's, that's interesting. We, when we, we did some, Gareth and I were doing some work with our gaming degrees um, when we were at the University of Derby and we were talking about um, instances of gaming transfer phenomena. Is that something that you've come across? It may be a different word that I know, but please just describe it for me. Just people who are using a lot of gaming time, commonly reporting that they were visualizing the images on the games afterwards, and they were starting to um, perhaps misperceive objects. Things seemed um, distorted around them um, and that they were also acting out without really realizing some of the themes in the game um, or perhaps they've always got the music from the game in, in their head as well. And, and are not just in the head, but some of them actually having both visual and auditory hallucinations around that. That sounds absolutely valid to me. I wouldn't be surprised. Intensive experience for long periods of time, whether it happens to be real or virtual, will carry over. And we're just seeing this now and we're calling it you know, transference because this is a, a relatively historically a new phenomenon. But this would have happened in the real world. Um, as well. So, yeah. And it's important to keep an eye on that because the difference between gaming transference like that and real life transference is that these games are often made in different countries. They're often very violent. They don't depict the world in a natural way in terms of movements and sound and and time. Uh, So you're getting a very unnatural transference of a world and a series of things that don't link with the real world in the same way. So, I'll let you make sense of it because you're the one who's examining this new generation. But I think we need to think about the intensity and the amount of time that's happening for. Mm-hmm. So what can we do about this, Eric? You know, what what's the answer? Well, a couple of things. First of all, um, I wanted to quickly go over the reasons that there is a a concern about excessive discretionary screen time. And I said, let's make this clear. We're talking about discretionary screen time. I'm not talking about children reading something on a Kindle. Most children are not doing that, despite what people say. Secondly, the idea that there's a distinction between mental health and physical health is a rather arbitrary one because each one affects the other. But the reasons that those involved with children are concerned and want screen time to be moderate are not just mental health or not just to do with porno or violent games. There's a wide variety of reasons, and I'll quickly go through them. Uh, Increased body fat is the big one. There's something that happens to appetite when people are looking at screens that doesn't seem to happen in the same way when they're reading books. And they end up eating more, and there's a very strong link with pediatric body fat. Also changes in what's called cardiometabolic biomarkers of disease. In other words, the chemicals in children's bloodstreams, which are linked with heart disease and type 2 diabetes, diabetes seem to turn for the worse with high levels of recreational screen time. Myopia. Uh, in other words, children's eyeballs, as they're developing through adult from childhood to adulthood, should end up round, relatively spherical. What they're finding is what's called axial elongation. The distance between the retina and the cornea is being stretched in an unnatural way, misshaping the eyeball and leading to myopia. That's one of the other huge concerns we're not hearing much about. Social skills and empathy, impulse control, mood, attention. And I'm not talking about the idea of um, divvying up our attention and look at Johnny Go. He's looking at a lot of different things and all of that. We're talking about sustained attention, formerly known as concentration. Children need to go for depth first before they develop breadth. And new media does not work for depth. It works for breadth and variety. Sleep deprivation, academic performance, strong links between excessive recreational screen time and lower grades, body dissatisfaction and eating disorders, mental health, which um, you know more about than I do, and screen dependency disorders like gaming disorder and internet addiction. So the reasons that people want screen time to be moderate are not just one. It's because of the range of links with excessive screen time or premature screen time. Um, The variety of those links is making experts say, look, this is not looking great. Let's subscribe or adhere to the precautionary principle. Now, what should we do? Uh, Very simply, this isn't a huge deal. And obviously, the screen industries want us to think it is. Uh, By the way, the the screen industries, 4.3 trillion pounds, I think they're worth now. The gaming industry, I think, is is just in a year, 1.8, sorry, 180 billion Uh, more than twice the value of the entire world's film industry. 
So the things that you and I are talking about don't get much coverage while the benefits. Yeah, I was going to say that the people who are going to spread the word are the people who are not going to want to spread the word. Yeah. And most of the experts that people in Britain are listening to this podcast, they'll pick up, you know, the BBC or the Guardian or the Times or whatever, and they'll see experts quoted that say, no, there's no evidence. We needn't worry. Children can enjoy screen time and it's educational. What the journalists never look at is where does that institution get their funding from? Now, I spend time looking at that. And very often the so-called experts work in tech departments or they work in institutes for technology. But when you look at pediatric people whose main focus is only on child well-being, they have a different view. And why is there this parallel universe? Well, it's obvious there's, it's to do with funding and money. So uh, ultimately, this is not a complicated problem. We're told that it is. It really isn't. First of all, we have to understand that parents are not their children's best friends. They are their parents and they have to set boundaries and limits as they do with almost anything. Presumably, as a mother, Joanna, you have boundaries and limits when it comes to chocolate consumption with your children. And you don't think much about it, but there'll come a point where you're thinking, hold on, you've had too many candy bars. That's enough of that. Screen time is simply one of those things that parents have to have a view on. And if they don't, their children will have more screen time. This is pretty well established. So have a view on screen time. The experts in terms of different countries and what they're recommending are all coming up with the same figure non-school related screen time. And we're also, we're not talking about reading books using a Kindle, but discretionary screen time, meaning gaming and television and Netflix and YouTube and social media. Average, they're talking about two hours a day. That's what they're coming up with across the world. Uh, children, two to five, as the World Health Organization says, one hour a day, less is better. Children under two, none. This, These numbers keep coming up again and again and again. And numbers help only because we can roughly get our teeth into it then if we have a, a rough rule of thumb. Not to be too fanatical about it, because you and I, uh, Joe, know that you know, like for example, you're a woman and generally they recommend you should have around 2000 calories a day as a woman. Now, you and I know that 2000 calories a day that come from chocolate bars and milkshakes and crisps and so on, and a couple of bottles of vodka, uh, not quite the same thing as 2000 calories a day that come from fruits and vegetables and complex carbohydrates and nuts. Uh, so parents should simply use their common sense um, and come up with a screen time figure that is an average. Some days it'll be higher. Some days it'll be lower, but have have some vague idea. Also think about a gap before bedtime of at least an hour for children and for adults as well, quite frankly. And think about what our children are watching because parents don't seem to feel confident about parenting nowadays. They, they find it difficult, it seems. And I think they need to be able to trust their instincts. If you simply feel that you don't want your child watching too much of this, but you feel you're happy them watching more of that, Go with it and don't feel guilty or worry about it. You can always change your views or your mind later. So think about the amount, think about before bedtime and uh, think about the content of what your children are watching. And that those are just for starters. But ultimately, parents need to take control of this issue, because if not, it'll be Silicon Valley that will be deciding and the culture and the advertisements that we see every night on television that will decide how much screen time our children have. And their view is the more the merrier, or as the advert, the guy said to me, um, <laughs> money's where the eyeballs are. Every time children or you look away, we don't make a penny. If you communicate, Joe, and look at your, your eight-year-old son, <laughs> you're cutting out the middleman. People need you to look at screens and they need me to look at screens. And we have to understand that. So it's up to us parents to think about it as something that needs some concerted decision-making about that that's a that's a general principle i would think yeah yeah and i guess you know just came into my head when when you were speaking there that of course you know we we've, we've come through this this pandemic and the screens really have have saved a lot of of jobs and uh, relationships and 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 really helped us to maintain connection when we weren't able to uh, see people physically yeah so, but that's the that's the distinction that you're talking about. There was a purpose for that. It wasn't mindless, endless engagement um, in a you know in a dopamine um, reward filled attention seeking way. It was that meaningful connection that that had purpose to it. 
Yeah, the main point is this is a technology is a powerful tool which we need to harness to benefit us. It shouldn't become a health and development burden. And again, it's that balance that we're finding with many new developments uh, that when they first come to us, we don't quite know what the definitions are of overuse or misuse or whatever. And over time, we learn the hard way about what we need to do. And you're right. They're great tools as you and I are using them right now. We're, we're able to produce a podcast at a distance effortlessly with very reliable technology, thanks to screen technology. Uh, and there's, so there, of course, are some very good reasons. And people often say to people like you and I, hey, you're, you're not telling people about the benefits of screen time. You're only being negative. Well, you and I don't need to because there's a huge advertising budget that does this 24 hours a day. What people are not hearing are the downsides linked with the misuse. So yes, obviously these are, are wonderful tools. During lockdown, they saved the day for many of us in terms of work or some education. But the good thing about lockdown, everybody talked about it negatively. There are some good things that came from lockdown. One of them is that it's it did the big experiment. The educational technology industries and the social media industries were saying really we can survive pretty much using the electronic forms of education. They're more advanced, they're progressive, they're the future, and also social media is where it is at. Well, we had as much as we want of all of that, and all the studies have shown that children didn't like it. A, they wanted to see people face-to-face. -face. People were cracking up in terms of mental health because they couldn't see people that they loved in the flesh. It wasn't the same thing seeing them on a screen. Secondly, when it came to what children were learning, they didn't learn as much using remote learning. They didn't do as much homework. And afterwards, they thought more of their teachers and more of their schools because absence made the heart grow fonder. So the experiment was very useful in giving us a point of comparison. Great as a backup, great as a supplement, not a substitute for real human connection, face-to-face, co-presence. And also, it isn't the same as having a real live teacher uh, in front of you, which is an important thing. So those were a couple of the benefits of lockdown, and, and there, I think there were a few more as well, but um, we're not here to talk about those today. No. And if you look at it from a human givens point of view, that if we take that, you know, obviously we've talked about the, the how the physical needs can be compromised by excessive use of discretionary screen time, but how our emotional needs can be can be compromised as well, because we perhaps lose that connection to community. We have a different community, we have a virtual community, but that's very different. Yeah. As you, the example you've just given to the 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 in-person communities that we missed so much for, for the most part during lockdown there's not that sense of intimacy in no. in the same way and also it, it compromises our privacy as well to a, a, a large extent and so i mean really we haven't got time to go through all of the needs but we will put a link to those in the podcast description but you can look through those and you can really it's quite interesting to map how excessive screen time can really impact on our ability to meet those emotional needs in balance and also then when we look at the resources from a human givens point of view that they you know it can really impact on our ability to build rapport, our imagination. It can certainly impact on our, our dreaming brain um, and also our observing self. So we can go through all of those things and really see the connections to how how much it leaks literally into to every area of your life. And so, you know, from all of the, the points that we've covered today without in any way demonizing screens, it's about harnessing that tech, as you said, and making it work for us rather than us being a slave to that tech. I'm, gl I'm glad you mentioned that because what you find from people who are wedded to lots of screen time and those who are finance will say, you and Joanna are demonizing screen time. And I haven't met any pediatric experts who want no screen time or demonize it, but people want a balance and they want the balance to be defined by people like you and I and child health experts, not by the screen industry. And I think what's happened is that, uh, for example, if you and I were concerned about the effects of chocolate on your children's body fat and their physical health, you wouldn't consult a, a professor of chocolate. You, you would consult a pediatric endocrinologist because you would assume there'd be a conflict of interest if you consulted an expert in chocolate who's financed by a chocolate company. But interestingly, with screen time, we have allowed them to come into our schools and our lives and to sit there as arbiters of what's considered healthy screen time for our children. 
And screen companies should not be defining what is considered healthy screen time. Human Givens and other organizations who are interested in people's mental health are far more qualified and don't have a vested interest, um, a conflict of interest. And we need to shift that balance so that those who are arbiters of what's considered healthy screen use don't come from the screen industry. They come from the mental health industry and the physical health industry. Mm. And that, that's something which has been overlooked. We just allowed it to happen. And I'm amazed by uh, the, the educational materials, the speakers and so on, who come from screen backgrounds. And you sort of think, well, you would say that, wouldn't you? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, really, really interesting discussion. And I think, you know, one we've, we've said, you know, along the way, so many different points and, and different avenues we could have gone down today. And, and perhaps we've got another podcast in this, Eric, for later on at some point. Who knows? But we're running out of time, unfortunately. Is there anything else in particular that you, you wanted to add? One thing I would mention to people is that role modeling is now thought to be an important aspect of your children's screen use. Now, I do health education for children and almost every area that I look at, whether it happens to be alcohol use or physical activity, parents influence what their children do. And we need to think about that. Our use in front of our children, our overuse or misuse of screen technology is, is something which has been overlooked. Uh, but role modeling is important in that area as well. Mm, mm. You know, and as you said, in all areas and, you know, one of the things that happens with the the increased use in screen time is that obviously we've, we've said children are spending less time outside in, in nature. And partly that is to do with parents' concerns of the, the dangers in, in the world. And so it feels safer to have our child inside, perhaps, you know, settled and quiet in front of the TV or, or on a computer game. And there's I've seen this in people around me that that feels safe to them. But what we know is that not being in touch with our natural environment can actually lead to higher levels of mental distress, certainly an increase in anxiety and low mood, aside from the, the problems that we know come from, from screen time. So that lack of time out in nature, that mm. lack of face-to-face -face contact with their parents, with their friends, with, with other people can actually lead to a sense of, of isolation as well. And we know that people may have 500 friends on certain social media sites and feel incredibly lonely because they're missing out on that emotional intimacy and that connection to the wider community. It's interesting you say that because the World Health Organization studied adolescents in this country and they found that they have, um, if not the highest, close to it, the highest amount of messaging used to keep in touch with one another across the day, but have the lowest levels of peer support across all ages and both genders. And so we've never been so connected, at least adolescents have never been so connected, never been on social media so much, never messaged one another so much, and never felt so disconnected, which is a variation on what you're saying. It isn't a substitute for the real thing. And they do need to get out. And it's funny that when people see their children indoors in front of a screen, it seems safe because you know where they are and they're upstairs. But just because it's a rather passive state doesn't mean it's safe. There's nothing bad happening that's overt. But there are forms of damage happening uh, or it's a more insidious form of damage while outdoors you're worried about immediate damage. Uh, but ultimately, as you rightly say, the balance would indicate better to get them outdoors. Um, it, it's the safer option, the lower risk of the two things. Mm. Absolutely. Eric, thank you so much for covering such a, a huge amount of ground today. And I'm sure that your knowledge and advice has, has helped our listeners. If you're interested in any of the, the things that we've talked about today, we'll put some of the links to the, the research in the podcast description. We'll also put a link to an online training workshop that the Human Givens College runs called How to Help Children Thrive. That link you'll be able to find in the podcast description as well. So thank you, Eric, for your time today. And thank you too to our listeners. Until next time, goodbye. Goodbye.